Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. I wanted to take a moment to say thanks to all of our new supporters on Patreon. We've seen such an outpouring of support from our generous listeners responding to our new bonus episode campaign. It means so much to us that you, the listener, have teamed up with us to help give voice to survivors of cults and help protect people from systems of control. This Friday, our Patreon-exclusive bonus episode will feature another fan-favorite guest, Thomas, who grew up socially isolated in Denmark with a covert narcissistic mother. We had so much feedback from his two-part episode that we decided to bring him back on for this week's bonus episode. You can join us in our mission and help keep the show going by signing up at patreon.com indoctrination where you'll gain access to all our bonus episodes, our exclusive archive, plus some cool extras like indoctrination t-shirts and tote bags. You can always help support the show for free by leaving us a review or rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Even just following us on social media and giving a share or like makes a big difference. Any way you choose to support the show is very much appreciated. I am very happy that you're going to be able to hear the second part of my conversation with Daniel Levin. Daniel Levin is an award-winning writer living in Los Angeles. He holds an MFA in poetry from the University of California, Irvine, where he taught creative writing and rhetoric. His writing has appeared in Provincetown Arts, the Sarah Lawrence Review, the Westchester Review, and the Bennington Review. During his time at Sarah Lawrence College, Dan, as a 19-year-old sophomore, got involved with Larry Ray, the leader of what turned out to be a dangerous cult. And Larry Ray has been all over the news for the last two weeks because of his trial. Dan has written about these harrowing experiences in his new memoir, Slonim Woods 9, a stunning firsthand account of the creation of a modern cult and the costs paid by its young victims. Here's the second part of my conversation with Daniel Levin. You were saying that you were calling your parents every day when the abuse got bad. So I'm wondering what was happening during that time and what abuse are you referring to? Yeah, so in the the last half of my time there, everything had really ramped up. So we were all staying awake for maybe 20 hours a day, sometimes more. We were constantly working for Larry in in some capacity or another. And there were very regular, what I think you would call it, hot seat sessions. So that's part of what was taking up those 20 hours of a day was somebody was getting pinpointed for whatever reason. They had broken something. They had used a tool incorrectly or in a way that seemed intentionally destructive. They had scratched a pan. They had folded some clothes wrong. And Larry's philosophy, which at first was so intoxicating, was that you in fact have control over every single thing you do and that everything is a choice and it's all a reflection of your state of mind. At first, the way that manifested was as basic as saying, like, clean your room. Because when you throw your clothes on the floor, that's not just arbitrary. It's that you're sort of, you're disrespecting yourself. You're making a choice that is a reflection of the way you feel towards yourself. Embrace your life as, as an active participant. And he would always talk about, you know, do you put your signature on this day? Do you put your signature on this action? That sort of thing. How that descended was, was it became so granular that mistakes no longer exist. Now it's, you know, oh, you drop something. You didn't drop it by accident. You dropped it because you wanted to break that thing. Why did you want to break it? Okay, you're harboring some kind of resentment against Larry because he's working to help solve these psychological problems you have and there's a part of your brain that's resisting his help. Fine. Why, why are you resisting that help? Because deep down you have some kind of trauma. What's that trauma? 
your parents abused you when you were young, that sort of so, but that conversation was extended over eight hours while we all sat around watching it happen and seeing a friend go through that, but then arrive at what appeared to be a revelation. You know, they're they're revealing, oh, this memory, this detailed memory of abuse or of them having depressive suicidal ideation that they'd never talked about before, these sorts of things. And so it would appear that the the system worked. And so at first in my mind, it felt like it confirmed to some degree that this was good. You know, look, it's these people actually do have this trauma that they haven't dealt with. And there's, I, I can't imagine another way it would come out. And I can't believe, you know, they did, they're admitting they damaged this thing on purpose. That's so crazy. And for a long time, it wasn't me, you know. And so it was like, that's so bizarre. I'm so glad that I'm not like that. And then it, it did turn towards being me, you know, and, and that's, I started to feel flabbergasted by what was going on because I was suddenly trapped in this thing where there was no explanation except the explanation that Larry presented. Oh my goodness. Okay. So this happens so often and it happens in some of these horrible residential treatment centers that we hear about. People want to know more about that. They can check out an organization, Breaking Code Silence, where people are coming forward with these stories. A lot of the hot seat ideas, you know, came from this cult synanon. But it it's also something that some of my clients deal with when they come to me and I've offered room in uh, the support group that I do for former cult members. If they've been in groups like this, it's very, very hard to just sit there. I mean, I see their heart is racing. They can barely sit because there is this inevitability, you know, that someone is going to be destroyed or worked on ad nauseum and people then are happy it's not them. Then they might even feel guilty that they're happy it wasn't them. (laughs) So you're sitting there sort of doing self-flagellation because it's not right of me to be thinking this, but still, thank goodness it's not me. But also it's sort of this diagnosis, but based on this house of cards, it's based on this assumption that's probably false. And you build all of this on top of it, that someone did something on purpose. A couple of things I wanted to mention about that is that very often when people are stuck in a certain space and they really know their feet are going to be held to the fire until, right, until they have a revelation or an awareness, they'll have it. Like, you know, people who go for auditing and Scientology after they've been in a room for hours and hours, well, you know, tell us about your life, you know, on another planet a billion years ago, they will, they'll start talking about their life on it, right? They're hungry, they're tired, they just need to get out of there. So a lot of these things that people come to say about themselves, they might believe or they just might not, but they know they have to say something where the person in charge is then going to be happy with them. And then they're going to be off the hook for a little while. And I think also it's this really clever deflection. If you have someone like Larry who cannot be trusted, but then he has everyone convinced that they're doing everything for certain reasons, that they can't trust themselves and they can't be trusted, that they're up to something, then people don't think the person who is accusing other people of doing things that are not trustworthy is not trustworthy themselves. Because clearly they care about that as an issue where they're calling out other people so they can't be doing it. I mean, it's, it is really down the rabbit hole. Yeah. And it's a classic con, you know, that's the, the, the same technique is used when someone's conning someone and they just, they make you feel as if you are the suspicious one and that you need to prove your credibility to them. And then so you forget about the idea that you are allowed to evaluate whether or not you trust this person. Wow. So here then you're, you're on the hot seat. And did that happen often? Yeah, it becomes hard for me to recall just how frequent this was because it, it all blurs together. It, it felt as if it was, I mean, I mean, first of all, the the idea of a day sort of broke down, but it felt as if it was every day that someone was on the hot seat or it would be lucky if maybe we got a day or two that things were 
not quite as extreme, but even that, the, the air felt like it bristled with this kind of anxiety because it was always coming eventually and you were walking on eggshells, but there was no way not to break eggshells. So, so it felt constant, you know, for, for this whole period of time, you know, about a year of this. Wow. Oh my, that's exhausting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, it was exhausting. <laughs> And, and head spinning too, right? Because you needed to have, it seems, these insights about yourself that might not have been real. Right. It's two things, right? Uh, or a, sort of a carrot and stick situation. And as you say, I, I had the experience of wanting to provide that revelation at the end, even after hours and hours of abuse, I knew enough to know that if I gave him what he wanted, it would end. So there's this feeling of, just wanting the pain to be over. But also on the other side, there's this knowledge that in some cases, if I say the right thing, if I tell the truth without knowing what that means, that I will somehow progress, right? That I'll get another hit of that, that drug, right? That he'll be proud of me or, ha you know, and, and I'll be held up as an example. Like, look at, you know, Danny went through all that and he he really like opened up and did such a good job and everyone else would sit around and feel like, oh, if, you know, if only I, I could be like him. So you go from being sort of on the bottom, like you're the scapegoat to on the top and like now you've accomplished something. And then that instills in everyone almost a desire to be in the hot seat because the abuse leads to something that you think of as productive. I will say, I talk about this at one point in the book because it felt sort of seminal there was a point towards the end of my time there when that voice that I was talking about was, was getting impossible to ignore that this felt potentially wrong. And as you said, it's sort of a house of cards. And once you start to think, well, what if it's not true? You know, you can't put that back in the box or you can, but you have to sort of sit on the box and you feel it screaming in there. And at one point I was on the hot seat it had been especially bad and gone on for hours. And this was the time when he had made a, a garrote out of aluminum foil and, and saran wrap and, and was using it to like abuse my genitals. And, and I, I think I disassociated a bit because it was so extreme. I felt as if, I mean, first of all, I know it's like as if I stepped out of myself and I noted, first of all, that it didn't hurt. And I thought that's so odd because he is talking about how he's a professional torturer and he's acting as if he's causing the extreme pain to an end. And yet it doesn't hurt. So either he's bad at this or this is an act, right? And that I'm supposed to maybe participate in the act. And so I thought, okay, well, that's, that's odd. And if it, either way, for the first time I considered, well, what if, okay, what if he's lying? And what if I lie, you know, consciously? What if I, knowing that it's not true, whereas before I had always kind of been pushed into being like, oh, maybe, maybe I did have this memory when I was younger, but instead I'll just say something and see how he responds. And I'll try to make it sort of innocuous so that I'm not throwing my family under the bus or something. So I told a story about how when I was young, I had seen a, a baby bird in the driveway and that it had clearly fallen out of a nest or something. And I made up this story about having like gone over to the bird and not being able to help myself. I had crushed this bird and that I was afraid, I'd been afraid since I was young that I was a sociopath. And I watched him accept that story because it was good enough. And I saw the, the audience, my friends kind of be like, oh, this is profound, you know, this thing. That broke some of the illusion for me because it was like, he's supposed to be this genius who can identify what's truth and what's false, but he either can't tell that I just made that up or he's okay with it being a lie because it satisfied everyone. And either way, that doesn't really bode well for this whole situation. It was really sort of the concrete beginning of my, it's not like I walked out the door that day, you know, I still had a lot of questioning to do, but that felt to me like really the beginning of this, this sort of unknitting. Incredible. I mean, I'm sure that as people are listening to this part of your story, they heard you jump from what we were talking about to what he was doing to your body, 
So that shows there's a lot that happened in between those two places in the story. More detail than you can get into here. And so people should pick up the book. But also that doesn't happen overnight, right? If he had said that he was going to do this during the first group meeting, you know, he would have said no. It's definitely more of a, a kind of a boiled frog situation, right? Um, there, are, there are a lot of letters between A and Z after that cafe experience, you know, the first time that I went over to the apartment with them, Larry sat me down on the couch with my friend and he had us close our eyes and lie back and everyone else was watching, you know? So even just to, to be asked to close your eyes in front of people is vulnerable in a way. And as just these small, just enacting power in little ways. But my friend did it and so I did it. So that's the peer pressure is there too. And then he played music and it was Neil Young and there were maybe some other songs and then asked us how we felt listening to the music and what we thought of it and then sort of picked apart our interpretations, right? And, and offered his own. And essentially it was like a lyrical analysis class, but what it was meant to do, it was very innocuous, but he was showing us that there were layers of meaning hidden in the things that we might experience day to day, but we wouldn't notice, but he would, and he could unlock that for us. And things like that, that seemed so mundane, were happening constantly at first, where he would, cooking was a big part of it. He would try to show us that if you were to make a sauce and you people don't think of it, you increase and decrease the heat at specific times over the course of making the sauce, it affects the taste. And he would give you two different spoonfuls of sauce to taste and ask you to notice the difference. And in your mind, you might not, but this man who seems so authoritative and has this whole idea about what he's done is telling you there's a difference. So you might say, yeah, that one does taste better, you know, and then now you've given up a, that even that little bit of agency. There's a, a point where he literally was slicing grapes in different directions, you know, a vertically sliced grape versus a horizontally sliced grape and taste these and can't you taste this? Isn't it different on your tongue the way that, and you kind of, you're like, well, maybe it is different and maybe I don't know. Maybe I just have to develop a palate, you know, and maybe he can show me. And then it extends from being a palette for taste to like a palette for reality, you know? Incredible. Incredible. Just the level of detail. It's actually reminding me of the, the, the Mick Martin case many years ago in California, where in these people who ran a preschool were accused of doing all the satanic ritual and sexual abuse of children. And it was all false. All these people went to jail and it's an interesting case that really studies about how the, when the children were being interviewed, by the court-appointed social workers and advocates, when they would ask the children if something had happened to them and the, kid, the children said no, the, the adults actually looked disappointed because they had their case that they were trying to build. So the children, and this is, you could see it filmed, they would look up and then get nervous that the person wasn't smiling. So they'd say, um, then yes, yes, it, ha it happened. Oh, good, good. So it is so interesting how much you'll do for that pleasing the other person, especially in front of other people, where you don't want to be the only one in the room who seems like they're not getting it and they're not tasting the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also at that, even at that age, right, at 18, 19, 20, you're just coming out of school, which is like a, a version of reality where the metrics for success and failure are, are pretty clear. And so you're so accustomed to, to like class and to succeeding in class and speaking well and seeing a teacher validate that doing well, things are, are tests, everything is a test, right? And then going into college is so much more open-ended and things are feeling a little bit less clear. How do I know that I'm succeeding or not? And now in that apartment, everything sort of narrowed down again and it became easier to know if you were succeeding or failing at first. And the rules of reality were presented very clearly to you. It was just, please this man. Right. And it, just the story you were just sharing and, and you were saying you wanted to get back to what happened right after meeting him for really long coffee. It's so subtly intimate. 
the closing your eyes and lying back and listening to music in somebody's apartment. And so it does, yeah, the whole boiled frog idea is so it's so set in place there. And so what what happened after that to get to that point where you were really just being tortured on that hot seat as you were talking about it? I wish that I could more clearly lay out the steps from there. I think that what happened is day to day, those things started to escalate more and more. The stakes felt like they got higher at a certain point. The idea of suicide being a part of the equation sort of entered in. In what way? Yeah, so I can clarify that. So there's an early conversation after I'd been there just for a little while where Larry sort of had everyone go around and they all had been a part of, you know, these conversations before I had arrived. And and so it was clearly sort of agreed upon that everyone had revealed to Larry that they had some form of suicidal ideation. He was presenting this as incredibly un- unusual, unlikely that this group, that all of us had suicidal ideation that we'd all revealed and that we all had chosen to live in the same house together and, and how sort of str- interesting that was. And then, and then the focus was turned on me, you know, and, and so didn't you also, don't you also think about that? You know, is that something inside of you? And, and, and it's, it's been sort of a complicated journey for me to reckon with that because at the time I had not had any, um, as I said, I'd had no real like therapeutic experience to get in touch with my feelings or what I was actually dealing with. I knew that I felt bad a lot of the time. And I also knew that I had days where I wished that I just didn't have to wake up. And this is all pre-cult, I, I, you know, or that it would, there's sort of call of the void, that there would be moments I'd stand on a subway platform and the subway was coming and there's just, I would have the image of jumping in. And all of that felt like things that you would never talk about because people would get freaked out. And I thought, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I do. And what everyone else is describing isn't that dissimilar from what I feel. And so I, I sort of gave in to that, that, yeah, I, I, I guess I do. And I didn't know how much I believed it, but I wanted, I didn't want to derail what he was doing, you know, which seemed like it was helping everyone. And so I thought maybe they do authentically have this in a more extreme way than I do. And maybe I do a little bit or something, but I, I you know, there's no reason for me to throw off this whole thing. And so that became a part of it in that he said that, we were all sort of bound to one another and that we were like dominoes. And if one of us broke and uh, hurt ourselves in some way, that that would set off this chain reaction and, and we all would. So we were all sort of responsible for each other. And that later on became how he tried to pressure people's families to give money, essentially, um, because he was saying, this person broke my tool. And we discovered through the, a long conversation that that was because of this, you know, childhood trauma or something. And because they're trying to sabotage my ability to help them. And essentially, for them to feel psychologically whole, they need to make this up to me. And they're at risk of suicide. So you need to give me X amount of money so that they can fix this thing. And then they won't kill themselves, basically. <sighs> Wow. I mean, I I can't help but think of a a word that some people know, but chutzpah, right? Like to have the chutzpah to to say that the hubris, just to make up something out of whole cloth in order to do extortion. I mean, you know, here he's coming across like he has all this life wisdom, but he, I'm sure he didn't really have a day job, right? I mean, like his, his job was being a parasite, basically living off of other people. That's not really laudable, right? So when you look at it, right, that's the vantage point. You see that from a distance and after, but in the moment, I can't imagine that he, I mean, having no conscience at all, that he could make these calls to the parents, panicking the parents also. And did they give him money? Yeah, I think that I should say, I think some of that is in the public record and some of it uh, is not, so I shouldn't comment on it, but I will say, a mystery for me was where his money was coming from. And, you know, there was one experience that I described in the book early on. I mean, first of all, there was a limousine all the time, you know, idling outside. There was a driver. I have no idea how this guy had just gotten out of jail. At one point, 
he had us all, we were all sitting in the limo after he had treated us all to a very nice dinner. And he threw everyone, each person, an, a thick envelope and said, count it, you know? And I looked in the envelope and it's full of cash. And I counted it. And everyone had, I think it was $1,000 each or two, maybe it was 10000 It was like an immense amount of money just sitting in this car. And those are the sort of things that are so flabbergasting, you kind of can't explain it to yourself except to say that this this must be an extraordinary man in some regard. I just don't know how or, or what's going on. But it's easiest to just accept his explanation, uh, which is that he's special, you know. I feel as I should also say just to go back to how things kind of progressed or escalated over time, that the other element of this was that early on, you know, they were, they were essentially letting me crash on the couch, right? Which I thought of as a temporary thing. You know, I just was trying to get my foothold in the city. So oddly, our positions had been reversed. I, I had a job working at an ice cream place downtown. You know, it's not as if I was fully removed from society. But of course, my coworkers at the ice cream place had no idea what was going on. My friend and friends outside of this, who I was still in touch with my family. And so I was just sleeping on the couch and uh, had recently gone through this breakup. And Larry and Talia, his daughter, and Isabella, they all shared this like California king bed in the bedroom. And I, again, this is one of these things that I have a lot of trouble reckoning with now. At the time, it was just presented as if Talia and Larry had such a close relationship that it was no big deal for them to sleep in the same bed. And this was a one-bedroom apartment, and it was sort of a practicality. I, again, I hear how ridiculous that is. Uh, and it was kind of like Isabella was part of the family. And they all just sort of needed a place to sleep. And this was like a favor he was doing or say it was as if he knew it was weird, too. But he was kind of like, I'll let this happen because, you know, they need a place to sleep, even though I would much rather just have my own bed. And at some point I was sleeping on the couch and, and maybe maybe I just wanted a couch to sleep on. And so I was willing to just set aside the thought that that was odd. I don't know. But Isabella came out of the bedroom and she approached me and I remember feeling uncomfortable and this sense of kind of my body locking up as she like took off my clothes and performed oral sex on me. And that was the beginning of kind of a, over my time there, there were a lot of experiences which felt like Larry was kind of engineering this relationship between me and Isabella. And then that evolved into him being involved sexually with the two of us, you know, which felt like something that was being set up from the beginning, from even before I came in, you know. Right. Okay. And Isabella is, just so people understand, who is she in this story? How did she get involved? Was she a student as well? Yeah, so Isabella was was another student at Sarah Lawrence. She was one of our roommates at Sloanum, and she was Talia's best friend. You know, they met at Sarah Lawrence, and it was as if Talia, who had been kind of, in some regards, going it alone her whole life, had found this friend, and they would they were family, and and it also felt. You know, I didn't know that much at the time about Isabella's family, but but we were told later on that her family was abusive, all these things. And so Isabella had also been surviving on her own and that the two of them had found each other and they were sisters. And, you know, what a what a gift. And so she was kind of she was the person who Larry spent, you know, all night in her dorm room with. And uh, he was kind of the first convert beyond uh, Talia. Right. Okay. Right. So I think when you're thinking back on him kind of grooming you and I guess everybody who he wanted in that way, going back to this conversation in the diner becomes right even more meaningful that he lowered the barrier of being able to talk about sex. And it is also something that he was talking to you about just in, in, I think, to let you know that he was open to the idea of people having sex who are of 
what different genders. I mean, was was that part of it where he was sort of introducing this idea that he was cool with it all? No, I, interestingly, he was deeply homophobic. Oh, so interesting. Yeah. So, or it was complicated, right? But I would call him homophobic. He he would say at times that like he had lots of gay friends and all this stuff. But if you weren't gay and you tried out having sex with another man, you would never be able to turn back, you know, that you would be sort of lost forever. And you would, and the way he characterized the life of a gay man was as if uh, it was this horrible thing, you know. And in that first conversation, you know, I had... I think pretty natural questions about my sexuality that I had just never been able or felt comfortable talking about with anybody. I grew up, you know, in a fairly conservative part of New Jersey and, you know, my parents were progressive, but we didn't talk about those things. And he essentially said, no, you're not gay. I can tell, you know? And I was like, oh, okay. So I guess I don't have to think about that ever again. And the way that he presented his involvement in sex with me and Isabella was as if it was an education, right? That conversation at the Starbucks felt like an interview before uh, engaging in a kind of class. And he was, he understood that I felt all this anxiety and nervousness. I had, I was struggling with erectile dysfunction and I felt insecure about my body and all these things. And it was because of all these things in my head. And he was just going to help solve those problems and teach me how to just like chill out and enjoy sex and be, and be good at it for myself and for my partner and all these things. And of course, that also was sort of a boy. He didn't present all of that up front, but it's what it became. Right. Okay. It's always sort of euphemistically referred to when, when people don't want it to be seen in its base form, it is an education or it's, you know, in some of these guru and Bible-based groups, it is a way of sharing some sort of spiritual energy. It's called a lot of other things. So then you don't feel you're necessarily doing something wrong, although it does still register in your mind and in your body that something is wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's, I mean, ultimately what made, it was one thing intellectually for me to start to understand that there were real cracks in the foundation of the reality he was presenting and, and that was all fine. But for me to actually physically leave, even though that felt like I was putting myself at, at real risk, that just came down to my body being able to, you know, handle it anymore. And that's not to say, I think that there are lots of people who endure these situations, you know, for longer than I did. And I, I don't know, you know, it's still a question for me what, how that happened, that I was, it's, it's as if I got lucky and there was just a moment maybe where my body was sort of asking me to leave loudly enough and and it felt possible and circumstances aligned and and I'm so glad that I did. So glad you did too. So as we start to to wrap this up, how long did it go on for that you know he was having sex with you and you know until your body said no more? Yeah, it's really it's hard for me to identify exactly when it began and when it ended, you know. It was like a period of of months right in in the middle of it all, you know, and and that was happening pretty regularly for that period of time and even that became wrapped up in all the psychology of the rest of it where after it wasn't happening anymore, I sort of wondered if I had done something wrong. And and in fact knew that I had, you know, I I and I talked about in the book there was it reached a point where Larry was instigating sex with me and Isabella and then had a friend who wasn't in, wasn't a part of the cult really, but who's kind of, I, I knew of. And that guy like came into the scenario and I, again, sort of disassociated. I like what, it was as if I wasn't there and there's two men and Isabella and, and I just remember sort of sitting to the side and just not, I just couldn't do it, you know? And I remember Larry telling me to like, he, I think he like gave me a few dollars or something and said like, go get some ice cream. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, first of all, I thought, okay, so I failed, you know? Um, you know, and I went down into the city in kind of a daze and bought ice cream and then came back to the apartment. And then what was a really typical experience 
because I never had keys to this apartment, you know? So it was always kind of up to Larry, like whether you were in or out. And and I didn't want to knock on the door because I knew what was happening inside. And I, I didn't want to get in trouble for somehow interrupting or not like having a sense for when was good, you know? And so I just waited out there. Well, you know, just like they waited in the limo, except in this case, it was a very different thing that I was waiting to end. And the ice cream just sort of melted in the bag, you know. And how symbolic also that you didn't have a key, that only he could let you in uh, upon his discretion. So interesting. Everything is so meaningful. Okay, so now you got to the point where, what, where you just needed to disconnect from all of this. What was it like for you? And also since leaving, what's helped you? So many of the people listening to this podcast have been in situations where they've needed to spend a lot of time healing, but getting oriented to even understanding what happened and also not blaming themselves for it, but really seeing that they were with someone who was a puppet master, who was a sociopath and to to then take it off of their own shoulders and to say, okay, you know, they were with a master, but still there's a lot of healing that needs to take place. So I'm curious about when you really left And what helped you upon leaving? As I say, there were a bunch of different things that happened that sort of convinced me more and more that whatever was going on wasn't quite the way that Larry presented it. It it also happened that just because of circumstances, I started to have a little bit more time to myself just to think my own thoughts. You know, it just happened. People were spending more time at school. You know, we were still going to school while this was happening. Larry was sort of busy with other things. And so I I had a little bit more time. And I, at one point, went up to the roof of the building. And then I saw that there there was a ladder that went all the way up to the top of the water tower on this building in New York. And it was the tallest building by far on, on the Upper East Side. And so I went up to the top of the water tower and sat up there just thinking, you know, this is cool. And then it occurred to me that I could absolutely kill myself right now, you know, if I really wanted to. I'm right here. I'm literally on a roof that slopes towards open air, you know, and then 45 stories down. And the way that Larry had explained things was that we needed to be so careful and controlled because the way he explained it, suicide was an uncontrollable impulse. You know, it was in us and it would just pop, you know, it just happened. And so that's why we needed him to make sure that we didn't just sort of randomly put ourselves, you know, just do it. And I thought, well, if I ever was going to do it, you know, this would be it. And it didn't happen. Whether or not I uh, was struggling with suicidal ideation, I I knew that it wasn't the way he described it. It wasn't like something I had no control over at all that would sort of wash over me and I wouldn't be able to stop it. That That's like one of, of a few things that happened that contributed. But essentially, I hadn't been able to get housing at Sarah Lawrence, which is why I stayed in the apartment for my first semester of my senior year. And then I got an email from them that there was housing. It became in my mind pretty clear that I, I really wanted to get away from Larry and from all of these people. And I wanted to do it in a way that they wouldn't see me as an enemy because I had seen how that happened. They would turn on people, people would become the focus. And, and, you know, if you have a group of people who are devoted to making you look bad to, or to hurting you, they can really, they can do a lot. So I was really scared, but I just, my goal, I just wanted to get to that housing on campus and get physically away. And so I kind of let things play out until then. I I tried to kind of give him just enough the whole time. You know, there were more interrogations and things like that. And and I tried to kind of make it seem as if I was, I was, I was growing and I was having realizations. And I did, yes, my father was at the root of all my problem, you know, and I discovered these things. And there was a point at the end where he had me smash my ukulele as if I was like freeing my, you know, as a whole thing. Then... I mean, I don't, almost don't want to say it this way, but it's as if he let me go. I, I don't know that he knew what was happening or he believed that I would stay in touch, but I walked out, you know, I was going ostensibly just to stay on campus, but I would still be a part of the group, you know, I would still come back and all these things, but I didn't, you know, and, and for a while I would answer phone calls from him just to try to like keep things on a level and... 
then at a certain point I stopped and I was just trying to listen. None of this was very conscious, but I just, I was just trusting how I felt. You know, I just felt so uncomfortable and scared when he would call me and I just didn't want, I just felt bad and I didn't want to do it anymore. So, so I stopped and, and it's not as if I really clearly understood at all what had happened. I didn't have language for it. And so, you know, I started dating someone not that long after and I just told them what I honestly felt, which was that I'd had this kind of strange experience with my friend's dad and he had been kind of weird and we'd had to do a bunch of work for him and we didn't like sleep that much. So it was just like really odd. And I just kind of like don't want him in my life anymore. You know, I just was like, I was cutting out a toxic person, you know, but I, I didn't really conceive of the whole thing. And, and that, I mean, I, a few months later, school ended, I moved to an apartment in the Bronx and constantly felt this fear. Every time I would approach a corner, you know, I thought that they would be there, you know. I thought that they would grab me or pull me back in somehow. And at one point, I did. I saw Talia and the whole group of them. They were crossing the street. And I was crossing the street towards them. And I, this was the moment, you know. They're going to say something to me or do something or grab me or they're going to try and say, let's get coffee, you know, and it's all going to start over again. And they just walked past me. And... I mean, I'm, I'm so glad that that of all the options, that's probably the best one, but it was so confusing, you know, because it was like, is this, did I make this all up? Did I, did I convince myself it was more extreme than it was? And at some point, I, I don't know how, but I was just sort of like trolling around on the internet and came across a list that I believe was from ICSA. That was a checklist of qualities that might help you understand if you're in a cult. And I think that the qualities that I would have associated with a cult at the, t at the time, and that I think a lot of people would, were more like, you know, it's religious, people are wearing robes, you know, there's Kool-Aid, etc. And this checklist was not at all like that. And it's just every point or most of them, you know, perfectly matched up. You know, the leader doesn't answer to anyone. There's no accountability, the discourage questioning of, of what's going on. They're sort of oriented towards bringing money into the group. You know, the, the separation from family, I think it even mentioned the hot seat type thing. So all suddenly I was seeing all these things I had experienced and there were words for them and other people had, there was a, a model, you know. And so that helped enormously. But I did go for years after this, still not really knowing how to think of it, you know. This thing had happened. I even, I went to Dan Shaw's support group, but you know, I still quite can't make sense of how much I, I, I kind of compressed it or, or compartmentalized it. You know, I, there was someone I was talking to a couple of years after and they were going to the bathroom. You know, I was staying with them in their house and there was one bathroom and I was sort of waiting to go to the bathroom because they were in there. And I said something to them when they came out about, how, oh, well, when I lived with that guy, you know, he would make me like wait for hours to go to the bathroom and I like could barely ever shower. And, you know, at a certain point, I literally could see that I had like dirt on my feet because I had just like not showered for so long. And they said to me, they're like, do you want to talk more about that? And I was like, no, I don't know, you know, whatever. And I, so it just didn't register as, as extreme. I just like couldn't let myself really go there until I started. I mean, what happened was essentially I got approached by uh, reporters for New York Magazine who had come across this website that my friend was on. Larry would often use websites as a form of sort of public castigation. He would, you know, if you kind of go against him, like me, he had domain names for all of our names. And so he did that for my friend. These reporters, someone had sent it to them and it was accusing her of doing all of these things. And all of the accusations were the same accusations I had seen. I had also experienced myself. And they, they were pursuing it as if it was real, you know? And so then I was seeing that this sort of insidious delusion was leaking out beyond the confines of the group. And even at that point, I had also told myself, I was like, this isn't sustainable. It's so crazy. Surely everyone else is going to leave the way I left. 
And and then I started to learn that that's not what had happened, that it, you know, had still gone on and that potentially my friends were still there and that this was a fact, you know, there was a video on the website and it was clearly from after, I, you know. So I had been protecting myself from myself for so long from what had happened and it it felt like at a certain point I kind of didn't have a choice it was just or, or I did but it just felt like my moral responsibility to I had to tell the story so that these people wouldn't perpetuate a completely false narrative that would hurt victims even more and that's what led to me writing this book uh, and I'm so glad you did I think it's very important to have the language to be able to describe what happened. And just as you're saying, the right language to label abuse as abuse. And it's not counseling. It's not whatever else. I think that's also why a lot of crimes go underreported because people will say, were you abused? No, because, right? Yeah. And I think that what I wanted to do is just complicate people's idea of what a victim of abuse looks like and, and what abuse looks like, you know, because I didn't see myself in the image of victims of abuse, survivors of sexual assault that had sort of been presented to me. And I just, I know that there are other people who have gone through similar things, are going through similar things. And just, there are people who are probably experiencing this as we speak. And if you ask them, are you being abused? You know, is this a cult? They would of course not. It's you know, I, I had a, a couple of parents who reached out to me whose son, I guess for his privacy, he just, he went to a, a similar school to Sarah Lawrence and his girlfriend's mom moved into their dorm. And then he started cutting off contact with his parents and they haven't heard from him in years and they've been trying so hard, you know, and all this stuff. And I know that that person would not consider what he's going through abuse at all or even inappropriate, right? He would think those terms don't apply. I can't think of anything else in my power to do beyond just like giving people other images, you know, a, a new kind of mirror. Right. So it's so important. I think also going back to this moment too, when you were saying that you suddenly saw them and you were worried about them kidnapping you or accosting you in some way, and they just walked right by. That's very often what happens. And it is very hard then to understand it. And also you can think exactly as you're thinking, did I exaggerate this in my mind? Because I seem to be almost a non-entity to them. It's a very purposeful thing. When in a situation, like you were saying, in the diner, you felt seen the biggest punishment, according to those people, right, is to not be seen at all, to not matter at all. And so it's like they've never met you and you had devoted so much time and sacrifice and all of that and none of it matters. And then it's hard to know where to put that. So I'm glad you were still able to say, okay, no, wait, it, no, it's really did, really did happen. Uh, right. Even though they're playing with my head now and making me seem irrelevant. Usually the punishment that you get or the thing that's considered the worst punishment is the thing that would be the worst punishment to the leader. And for people to ignore him would be considered the worst punishment. So I think he then develops that as the worst punishment for other people once they leave. That's often how it is. So I am so glad that you're on this side of it. Uh, it does take a long time to undo it. I'm glad you had that experience of talking about needing to wait to shower and use the bathroom and to have people kind of in the world outside say, that's not usual. And you may have said it without, you know, any kind of affect, like it was kind of the norm. It had become the norm in your life. Telling your story in that way and having other people hold a mirror up to it is so important. And so I'm wondering now, just to finish up, what advice would you give to people who are, you know, about to go to school or in a situation where they feel they're being manipulated or they're not sure, maybe they are clearer about it after listening to you speak or reading your book, what would be good for them to do? I think 
on the simplest level, your point earlier that it's unusual for an adult or a parent to be living among young people is something worth noting. I think that we have to balance between the value of openness and exploration in, in a place like a university with certain expectations and standards and rules that are there for a reason. Um, so just kind of finding that line and knowing that, you know, recognizing that this is a vulnerable time and, and sort of a sacred space um, and, and trying to keep yourself safe in that environment. I would also say, though it's more abstract, that the more that people can just trust their gut feeling, that's the biggest lesson for me in all of this is that, I mean, even in telling my story at the end of it, it all comes down to believing yourself that I felt like this guy was kind of weird at first. And I, and I felt that, but then, you know, intellectually I said, well, my friends are kind of on board and, and maybe he can give me a couch to sleep on. And so I ignored how I felt, you know? And of course, like there's value to, to the more intellectual side and there's value to the emotional side. But when it comes to when it comes to putting yourself in, in, into vulnerable situations with other people, I think really trusting your gut is, is not a bad thing. And then I would say, if you do find yourself in some kind of complicated, potentially coercive relationship with someone, one thing that has occurred to me is, is that it's worth just asking yourself, can I leave, really? And at the time, Larry would have said to me, like, of course, you can walk out the door anytime. But it's not about whether physically you can leave, right? If you leave, is that going to be a disaster? Does it feel like the world is going to end? And if it feels that way, I think that's a pretty strong indicator that something is, is really unhealthy in this relationship because you should be able to just live your own life. If you can't say, like, well, I'm going to take a year off from you, you know, there's something else going on. Right. And especially if you're made to feel responsible to each other in that way, right? That you would feel guilty for leaving. Right. Okay. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm so happy for people to be able to hear this first person account and the wisdom that you bring to it and just being so open. And it helps so much. Thank you. Really. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Yeah. I really appreciate it. One more thing before you go. Oh my goodness. You know, there are some stories that you hear and you just wonder how people made it through these experiences with enough tenacity, I suppose, to pick themselves back up, with enough support to pick themselves back up, and to be able to write a book and to be able to just deal with day-to-day -day life, knowing that you've been traumatized in these ways. It is quite incredible to hear a story like this because it makes me be reminded that, you know, when people say, eh, well, cults don't really exist, you know, they're looking sort of for the obvious signs. They would never think that it could be happening in an apartment building in a city or on a college campus. but. Of course, it always comes back to the relationship, the relationship between the leader and the followers, how much control that person exerts, how much they put pressure on people slowly but surely to give up their own lives, their own thoughts, their own dreams, their own safety, their own safeguards. It is so amazing to think about the things that Larry Ray did and said. And I want to come back to one of the things he did and said. But first, I want to talk about the fact that there are many people who can convince other people that something is true about them. And you want to question when someone makes a statement about you and you're not sure that that's true for you. I have talked about this previously on the show, but I ran into one of the teachers who was at this workshop that I did at a school many years ago where by seeing her, I was reminded of it. I was talking to them about how it's so important to be careful about what you say, especially declarative statements, the absolutes. 
because those stick more so the negative ones than the positive ones. I'm sure there's an evolutionary reason for that, but still, it's unfortunate. So that's why when I asked the teachers on one piece of the paper to write down memories they had from their own childhoods, from their own school experiences, the comments that teachers made to them that were positives, that were complimentary, that were affirming. And then to flip over the piece of paper and to make a list of the comments they remember teachers saying to them about what they couldn't do, what they weren't good at, what they shouldn't bother trying to do, anytime they felt shamed. And across the board, the list of the negatives was much longer than the positives. That's not necessarily to say that teachers say more negative things than positive things, but those are the things that we remember. And they change the course of our lives at times, like being told, no, there isn't a place for you in this choir. You know, you might want to think about picking up an instrument because your voice just isn't good enough for this. When it could be that you were going through puberty, and that's why your voice wasn't able to be controlled. Or, I find this especially for girls. Well, don't worry about it. Girls aren't good at math, so you might want to take another English class, or why don't you take French? So people go into their lives with these statements in their heads, and they build their life sometimes on them as though they're truths. So they don't go into the sciences, and they don't go into math fields, and they don't become architects, and and they don't use those skills that they might actually have when they just really needed to learn how to do it. They needed the formulas and they needed the encouragement. One of the things that Larry Ray did was he convinced them all that they all had suicidal ideation, meaning they were all planning and thinking about committing suicide. Now, if you're ever involved in an organization and someone says, this one thing is true for all of you, then you know that it's time to go because that's never going to be the case. But when you look at something as insidious as this, you can see how he's teaching these people, these students, these young adults to be dependent on him for their lives, for their survival. And he's teaching them to gaslight themselves that they really can come to be convinced that they can't control themselves, that they are going to commit suicide if not for him. And then because they're not committing suicide because of him, they're going to feel indebted to him because they think that he's the one keeping them alive. But honestly, if any of them had developed suicidal ideation during the time that they felt entrapped by him, I wouldn't be surprised. The part that's missing in him saying that he was needed by all of them or else they would all commit suicide is that the reason they would even think about suicide was because of him. So it could be that he just didn't want to see that or it could be that because of his personality disorder, he was unable to see that. But when you're suddenly told that you need someone to help you with something, you want to understand what that something is and if it's true and that maybe you have that in your life, maybe you have that feeling because of this other person. That's that kind of twisted gaslighting you see in manipulative relationships where the causal relationship is flipped so that suddenly you are suicidal and this person's going to help you rather than this person has made you feel potentially suicidal and then you don't need him, you need to get out. So. One of the things that I'm also reminded of is this picture that I saw years ago. It was of a big horse who was tethered to a tiny little plastic chair. And the plastic chair was loose. It wasn't tied down in any way. It weighed less than a pound, I'm sure. And the horse just stood there because it saw that it was tied to this chair. There was a sense that they couldn't go anywhere. Once they were tied to something, they no longer had the freedom to leave. 
that thing could be something that would never have kept you there, but you give it an association. You give it a meaning. You give it a power. Just like these people gave Larry Ray that power. Not on their own. He made sure of it. He cultivated it. So think about what you're tethered to. And think about if it really is something that is helping you or that is trapping you. Think about how to untie the tether. Think about how to free yourself. But always think about the statements that you're given that somehow are now true about you and wonder about them before you accept them. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.